Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. Hello. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy. And Kevin. And it is the year, sort of, 2020. No, it's all the way 2020. All right, it's all 2020. We're all in. We're all in. So, Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year. (laughs) What's the name of this episode? Oh, yeah, this is, uh, this this is our party eight. edition. It's New Year, so we're partying. You can't tell. <laughs> we are not partying. This is this is the party. It's the potty. Get it? No. Podcast? Oh, shit. <laughs> Good yeah, one. Yeah, so Good we're, one. we're doing this instead of watching balls drop. Um, and drink... Well, you're still drinking. Um, I'm always drinking. Yeah. Well, you're drinking for two. I am with child. (laughs) (laughs) So the theme of today's podcast or tonight's podcast is party fouls. Ah, party foul. Yes. Lots of party fouls. Um, Except for these fouls are real bad. Party foul play. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Yeah. So um, as you guys know, New Year's Eve is... Deadly. Deadly. Um, Deadly, mate. The, it is the day of the year that more DUIs happen than at any other time. Party foul. Lots of party. Yes. <laughs> so we wanted to look at some parties that have gone wrong, basically. So the tonight's crimes um, are ones that have come out of um, some kind of party. So we hope that you party safely. That's what we're trying to say. What she said. Don't drink and drive. Wear a condom. On your head. (laughs) Don't kill people. Anyways, so happy 2020. Please follow those set of rules this year. Mother Amy (laughs) commands it. Um, Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Um, Just to be more badass. (laughs) In every way. Um, Well... My resolution that you didn't ask for is um, <laughs> to cover more unsolved cases. Oh. It's really easy to do it that, you know, like, oh, this is crazy, you know, sensationalized ones that everybody does. And, you know, those are fun every once in a while. But, you know, one reason I really wanted to start the podcast was to also shed light on some ones 
Um, you know, maybe local, you know, that's kind of a side, but the, the cold cases, the unsolved, the, the stuff that can be solved. So I'm going to start the year off right and do one of those tonight. You know, mine is solved. Yes, yours is solved and very solved, very solved. And the person who did it is out. Oh, wait, it's, it's that, that solved. spoiler alert. It's, it's that solved. <laughs> it's that solved that's solved. And then everyone's, I guess, cool. Sort of not. Yeah. Tonight, I'm going to focus on the death of David Josiah Lawson. To start things off, it's important to know where this uh, crime took place, which is Humboldt County. Humboldt County, have you been there? I've been through it. Yeah, you went to Arcata. That's actually where the crime took place. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, you were when like... When did this take place? Two, two years, a little over two years ago, two and a half years ago. Pretty sure it wasn't me. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, if it was, we would not. I would, I would, I would turn you in. <laughs> so Humboldt County is home to beautiful landscapes and a whole lot of pot. Yep. Yep. Whole bunch. But it's one of the most dangerous places to live in California. Um, most of the information I got was from a documentary by PBS on their like series called SoCal Connected, and it, they're on their s- season ten, and this is episode two. It's really easy to find. It was just released in October of this year, so just like two months ago. And it's very, it's very, very well done, and it, it was done very much with Josiah, who he goes by his middle name, so I'm going to refer to him as Josiah throughout this entire thing. But it was, it was very much worked in conjunction with his um, mother. Interviewees in the film state that Humboldt is a place to get away with murder and a place with a lot of unsolved murders. It also leads the state in car crashes and accidental deaths. Hmm. Many of the country's issues arise from poverty and a severe lack of resources. While cannabis farms have traditionally brought wealth to the town, there's also been a huge influx of cartels and federal regulations, which has made the industry more dangerous. And if you want to know more about it, which I have not seen this documentary, but there's a Netflix documentary called Murder Mountain, which is in Humboldt County. It sheds light on the cannabis-related deaths neglected by law enforcement. According to statistical data, in 2010, Humboldt County was the most deadly place to live in the state. Humboldt had one death for every 103 residents. Hmm. Each county's health status profile lists both natural and unnatural causes of death. One of the primary reasons Humboldt is the most dangerous county is its lack of resources, 14% of residents don't have secure access to food. It also has the highest rate of death by firearm. It also has the highest rate of self-inflicted death. One of, not the highest, but one of the highest. Its death rate is five times higher than the state average. It has a long history of missing person cases. It uh, leads the state in post-neonatal mortality rate. That's not good. And they said that a lot of it has to do with it's really hard to retain quality medical staff. Like, they they start there and they don't want to build their career there. It's, it's fairly rural. And then between 2012-2015, about 70 per 100,000 people perish from unintentional injuries. I don't exactly know what that means, but, you know. Accidents? Yeah, that just sounds like a 
the Bermuda Triangle. Of yeah, it's just a place where it's really Northwest. easy to either disappear or to do some disappearing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and actually, our friends Cynthia and Raul were just in town, and Cynthia's daughter was thinking about going to Humboldt State, and Cynthia started just like googling some things about Humboldt State, and was like, "No, I do not want my daughter going here." It's it's pr- I. Until I started doing my research today, I didn't actually realize, like, how gnarly it was, the stats, you know. It's about an hour away from the Oregon border and six hours north of San Francisco. It's a rural community with a clash of hippies and lumberjacks. Behind uh, the quote-unquote Redwood Curtain, it is one of the whitest countries in the state. Oh, counties in the state, sorry. Racism is alive and well there. In the very early hours of Saturday, April 15th, 2017, something terrible happened. David Josiah Lawson, 19, was a student at Humboldt State University. He grew up in Paris, California, which I believe is in Los Angeles County, and attended Rancho Verde High School in Moreno Valley. After accepting his spot at Humboldt, he announced that he would be majoring in criminal justice, which... It's just sad that he was, that's what he was majoring in, you know. Mm-hmm. Josiah, or DJ, um, as he was known by many of his friends, but I'm still going to refer to him as Josiah. He wanted to be a lawyer and be involved in politics. He graduated high school with honors. Um, in the documentary, they interview Ishmael Adams, his uncle, and he said that Josiah was the first to graduate high school and go to college um, and that he was a positive role model for his entire family. His mother who I believe is a Jamaican immigrant. She's super duper amazing. She has a minor accent and she is a single mother. She was raising Josiah and his other siblings as a single mother and doing a really, really good job. And again, she goes by her middle name as well. Her full name is Michelle Charmaine Lawson. And I'm going to refer to her as Charmaine throughout. Humboldt was about 13 to 14 hours away by car. So this was like her, you know, first baby going off to college and that was pretty far Josiah loved the outdoors and the redwoods, so he was really excited for this change of pace and scenery from Los Angeles area. Upon arriving at the dorms at Humboldt, Annalisha Johnson became a quick friend to Josiah, and she's featured a lot in the documentary. She lived down the hall from him. She said he was outgoing, talkative. His energy and happiness was infectious. He laughed all the time. Like many others, Josiah was an outsider at the school. About 40% of the student population is from Los Angeles. The town is about 84% white, not disclosed by the recruiter. They made that a very much a thing. And when I was working in Portland, you know, a lot of schools that had a very, very high percentage of white students were really, really always trying to recruit from Jefferson, which is the, I believe it is still a uh, majority black, but it's the only majority black high school in the state of Oregon. And um, there was a lot of recruiting of black students to go to Oregon State University and U of O and all these places that really needed to get their numbers up of students of color. And I think it's really shysty to not disclose or not at least say why that they're wanting to um, recruit so many students of color. Do you know why they need to recruit students of color? Probably some federal guidelines or something. It's also grants. The The university receives money for having higher numbers of um, students from either like disadvantaged backgrounds, like first generation college goers, students of color, students from, uh, you know, like that are 
you know, traditionally mar marginalized in some way, whether by race or gender or, you know, um, income bracket or immigration status, you know, it always makes the school, quote unquote, like look better if they have a diverse student population, which again, like I'm all for students of all kinds of diverse backgrounds being able to attend a university, but to like not disclose that to the family. And again, this is like the first time they're having a family member go away to school. I feel like the recruiters should have like, I don't know, recruiting is a whole thing I don't totally understand, but I don't know. She, she just said that she felt like the recruiter should have mentioned it, that less than 2% of the residents are black in that area. But the mom even says that this wouldn't have changed his mind. He, he really, really wanted to go. She did say that how, uh, distance, weather, and isolation started to get to him, and he really started to feel lost towards the end of his sophomore year. He moved off campus in his sophomore year. So he did go back for a second year and he did really well. I actually found his Facebook page and he was really, really proud of his grades and he was really, really proud of his progress. He's just really proud of himself and he was really all about social justice and making sure that people knew that he was doing well and that he was being successful. It's just, it was incredibly sad to look at it and it has now been made like a, a memorial like Facebook page as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, like, people can't post, like, stuff anymore on it. It just can kind of be there as, like, a an artifact of his. After he moved off campus in his sophomore year, he experienced a lot of shit, okay? he It was, like, the first time in his life he was being followed in stores. He was called race, racial slurs on a bus once, and he was the one that was kicked off the bus because he decided to say something back to the people who had said something to him. And he was really floored by that. And um, I think he was talking to Annalisha a lot at this point, And she, like, couldn't believe it either. Like, just the kind of outright racism that they just kind of felt like didn't happen on the West Coast. Like, that was only something that happened in the South, you know. Mm. He felt on edge, but he shrugged a lot of it off. And I, I don't think he even told his family so much because I don't think he wanted them to worry. Him and a friend named Katari Thompson went to an off-campus party in Arcata. It was known as the quote-unquote party of the year since there was probably only about a month or a month and a half left in school. Around 2.45 a.m., a group of white girls started accusing a group of African Americans about a missing cell phone. A boyfriend of one of the girls showed up and a brawl broke out. Josiah ended up on the ground. He didn't get up. He was stabbed. A friend began to administer CPR, and someone called 911 by 2.47 a.m. Only three officers were there at first, and from what it sounds like, I don't think there ever were more than three officers there, because that's, like, what they had on a Saturday night. They're, that It is pretty out in the boonies. Yeah. The crowd was screaming at them to do something, and because he was bleeding out. The ambulance drivers told, and they said that the ambulance drivers took like 13 minutes to get there or something. It was just at that, like, it was almost pointless at that point. Like, he was breathing, I think, when the officers got there. And, like, he wasn't, I think, I don't know. It's, 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 it's fairly convoluted. And a lot of the information I was trying to get was from, like, common threads. Like, not a lot of people have, like, looked at this case. And since it's only, like, two and a half years old, there isn't a ton of information on it. Hmm. So the ambulance drivers told Annalisha that he would be fine, 
but by the time she got to the hospital, he was gone. He was he had died. So at 4:12 a.m., Crystal Amini, Aminimo called uh, Josiah's mother's cell phone to let her know that her son had passed. So what happened? Kyle Zollner, who was not an HSU student, a Humboldt State University student, but was a local of the town, was called to the party by his girlfriend, Layla Ortega, after her cell phone went missing. It is somewhat unknown if or what the altercation was between Zollner and Lawson, Josiah, like what it was, if it was anything. Looking at Zollner's mugshot, he looks pretty beat up. He's got like a pretty gnarly black eye and definitely some like gnarly cuts on and bruises on his face. Like something definitely happened to him. The documentary does not discuss if there is any direct contact between Josiah and Kyle. But on the Justice for Josiah Lawson website, I was able to find out some sketchy details about what happened that night when looking at the looming questions portion of the website. So this is like the mother really keeps this website together. And so these are questions that she had, which gave me a lot about what happened that night. Why was Kyle's car allowed to be removed from the crime scene? And again, Kyle is most likely, I and, and it's alleged, it's not even alleged because he has never been, he, ah, this is so complicated. Kyle is probably the guy who stabbed him, if he stabbed him, okay? Why was Kyle's car allowed to be moved from the crime scene? So apparently he was able to just drive away from the crime scene or somebody else took his car away. Why did Lila, which is his girlfriend, that's the girl who is accusing Josiah and or his group of friends about stealing her cell phone. Mm. Why did Lila feel the need to lie about touching Kyle's knife bag that he used for his job as a chef? And then again, this is like the mother giving her commentary. She testified in court that she never touched the bag. However, her friend Casey Gleaton testified that Lila removed the knife bag from Kyle's car the morning after the stabbing and cried about one of the knives being missing. Why was it never mentioned in court, especially during the closing arguments of the prosecution, that Josiah's girlfriend was jumped by Zollner's girlfriend and her friend Naya Wilkins? Um, Naya. Naya? Naya Wilkins. Josiah's girlfriend was left with bite marks on her breast caused by Lily Ortega that severely scarred her skin. She was also left with a puncture wound on her left arm, which shows someone tried to stab her with something as well. And again, like, I didn't get any of these details from, like, news articles or anything. So obviously, like, the mom is way more privy to information that happened that night than like a lot of other things. So that's why I'm getting the information like in kind of question form. When Zollner was asked if he stabbed someone, he responded to Sergeant Dockweiler saying that he quote unquote didn't remember. When Dockweiler told Zollner that people said he had stabbed someone, Zollner replied, did they see me stab someone or are they saying that I stabbed someone? At the scene that early morning, officers noticed bloodstains on Kyle's clothing and a knife under a car about a couple of feet away from Josiah's body. So they took him into custody. Within days, he was charged with murder and he pled not guilty. Between the conflicting eyewitness testimony and Zollner's fingerprints not being on the weapon, in addition to no DNA testing happening, after five days of testimony, the judge determined that there wasn't enough evidence and dropped the charges. Huh. There were many walkouts attended by both students and staff on behalf of the dropped charges, and 
uh, for justice for Josiah, which was like the hashtag and the chant that all of the students and staff were using. The ruling was met with outrage with the charge led by Charmaine. Charmaine was like constantly going up to Humboldt County and constantly like um, leading vigils and prayers and protests and marches and just everything you could think of. She was there constantly. Unfortunately, Josiah wasn't the only student, let alone black student, to be murdered from the university. HSU student Corey Clark was murdered off campus after a homecoming game in Eureka. His death was has also gone unsolved. There's an unsettling pattern happening here. And so people just really couldn't ignore this very unsettling pattern that was happening. Um, I mean, obviously, there were a lot of years in between, but the last two deaths have, be, have been unsolved black male students. In the early 1990s, enrollment was about 7,800 with about 11% as minorities. And the pressure was on to get those numbers up in order to get the university to get more grant money. Los Angeles and Oakland were recruiting grounds for this target. It worked. There was an explosive growth of diversity, and it was unfair to students who didn't know what the rationale behind this was. One student called it a quote-unquote diversity quota, and the school and law enforcement were not equipped for what this meant. They were not equipped to solve a murder. The incident brought to the surface a lot of racial tension in the town. No matter if it was racially motivated or not, it was being racialized after his death nonetheless. Due to the fact that Charmaine felt the Arcata Police Department was incompetent, and in the documentary, she's like, I want you to quote me on that. I think the Arcata Police Department is ridiculously incompetent. She contacted former FBI agent, now private investigator, Tom Parker. He worked on the case pro bono for like six months, and he found that Arcata police botched things up from the start. He said there was a lot of subtle racism just under the surface. There was rampant incompetence and also just a lack of interest on the part of the officers. They just weren't interested in solving his murder. He quit, and then a little while later, so did the police chief. In February 2019, District Attorney Maggie Fleming impaneled uh, a criminal grand jury. She felt a lot of pressure to do this. I don't think she would have done it completely on her own. She impaneled a criminal grand jury, which convened to look at evidence that wasn't available during the preliminary hearing. One of the grand jurors spoke to the film crew, and he wanted to remain anonymous. He said that the DNA at, at, the, at the grand jury hearing, the DNA results from the knife came back, and they said that the DNA was 72% Lawson's and 26% Zollner's. 15 out of 18 voted that Zollner had stabbed Lawson, but at, at first, I guess. But by the end of the third day, the grand jury voted to not indict Zollner, believing that the stabbing happened in self-defense. And again, I'm not getting a lot of the information about what else they got. I'm getting, obviously, from very much um, the Lawson family's point of view and all the supporters of Josiah. But I, <laughs> this was not, a, this was not a, uh, a very popular verdict to have. Not only did Josiah work hard to go to Humboldt, but his mother, Charmaine, sacrificed a lot for her son to be there. This place took away her son. In May of 2019, Charmaine accepted. Oh, I, I get kind of 
I get a little teary here. I it's hard. Charmaine, because he would have, if he had stayed, if he had been alive, he would have graduated in 2019 with his bachelor's degree. So Charmaine accepted an honorary degree. See, I get all, I get all, <laughs> I get all teary. <clears throat> she accepted an honorary degree on her son's behalf. She will continue to fight until she sees justice for her son. She invites families who have witnessed loss to join her in fighting together to find justice. She's like the nicest woman in the world. It's like ridiculous. Anyways. As of February 4th, 2018, there is a new substantial cash reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction of those responsible for Josiah's murder. The Eureka chapter of the NAACP announced a new scholarship for Humboldt State University and the College of the Redwood students that was set up in Josiah's memory. The first recipients of this scholarship were awarded in June of 2019. Charmaine was in attendance and got to meet the three women who received the scholarship. If you know anything, please contact Arcata Police Department at 707-822-2428. Although, remember, they're very incompetent. Sorry, I don't mean to be like hating on law enforcement, but they really fuck this one up. Or the Humboldt County District Attorney's Office at 707-445-7411. Or you can email justice, the number four, David Josiah Lawson at gmail.com. And again, that's justice, the number four, David Josiah Lawson at gmail.com, providing contact and leading information and or visit the website justiceforjosiahlawson.com. So yeah, that's my case. And it, I got real emotional when I was doing it. It was it was a really, really hard case to investigate because it's it's hard to follow. Because of the lack of, like, story that's there. And the comments on um, a lot of the websites I was looking at are crazy. They're very racial. That's a nice way of saying racist. Um, and it's it's very ugly. It's a lot of, like, white locals and people of color that are both local to the area and not local to the area just fighting. It's... It's it's rough. It's a it was a rough one to investigate. That's what the internet is. <laughs> that's what it's for now. Yeah. So sorry to be a bummer, but that one was kind of a. I felt like it was an important one, and it's it's unsolved, and I think it should be solved this year. That's my resolution. So for the next case, I recommended this one to you because I know that you kind of like weird ones or ones with like conspiracy theory aspects or just or just plain out weird ones. And this one's sort of weird. This one, um, the characters are pretty damn weird. Yeah. And on, is it the day after Christmas that we watched the movie? The kind of Hollywood version of the movie? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it, you'd never heard of this one before? No, it's not really my scene. Yeah, well. Believe it or not. Yeah, so just so you guys know, Kevin's in like the kiddie pool version of true crime, and I'm, I've been off the deep end for kind oh. of a while. <laughs> wow. So I, I'm swimming with the big kids, and uh, Kevin's, um, he's learning his breaststrokes. So, do you <laughs> uh, okay. So just 
I just want to acknowledge like mine was heavy and a lot of it's because it's unsolved and it was super duper recent and there's just been no justice. But yours is a, it's by no means lighter in a sense that someone didn't die, but it's lighter in a sense that justice at least has been somewhat served, right? Depends who you ask. Oh, okay. Well, let, let's go. Well, let's let's go. So this one is about party monster Michael Alleg, born April 17th, 1966 in South Bend, Indiana. Second of two sons to John and Elke Alleg. How do you like that name? Elke. Elke Alleg. <laughs> okay. She sounds German. Yep. They, the parents get divorced when he's four. Uh, Michael attended Grimsom Middle School and later Penn High School. He was a straight-A student and graduated in the top 8% of his class. As a teenager, he was bullied, beat up, and teased because he was a homosexual. Uh, South Bend is real close to Notre Dame University. Notre Dame? <laughs> yeah, it's just Notre Dame. I Sorry, think you're trying I was to be... just in France. <laughs> um, so Notre Dame. And I mean, you've watched football, right? I've seen it before. What do you... Okay, never mind. What's football have to do with this? Well, because like... Just I know like Notre Dame's got a big game. Yeah, you could be like, oh, team. the Notre Dame football. Like, I don't think I've heard any announcer be like, the Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for clearing that up. Um, a lot of mixed reviews on how good of a place it is to live in uh, South Bend. But it seems like growing up there as a homosexual in the 80s probably wasn't the funnest thing. I don't think it was fun anywhere in the 80s. It, well, it sounds like it was pretty fun in New York City. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so... Michael graduated in 84 and moved to New York City to attend Fordham University. I know someone that goes to Fordham. Shout out to Isabel. Oh, well, there you go. Yep. He got a scholarship to go there. Um, Dang. Yep. He it's also, a good school. yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also left Indiana to escape the conservative social environment, obviously, for the big apple. Uh, <laughs> He studied architecture at Fordham, but soon transferred to the Fashion Institution of Technology, which sounds like a fake-ass school to me. Fashion Institution of... Well, we have something like that down here, FIDM, F-I-D-M, the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And yeah, it's a for-profit school. I, I, I wonder if this one is too. It kind of sounds like it. Fashion it, 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 it would still be. It would be like Technology. It's like legit, but it's it for-profit. I mean, a lot of those schools that are sound like that, like they're legit, but they're not, they're not public. They're like profit, you know, private profit schools. They profit off of people's tuition. As they should. Capitalism works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keep going. Um, Trump. <laughs> so there he met the boyfriend of artist Keith Herring, who introduced Michael to the New York City nightlife. Alec ended up dropping out of school, and he got a job at Danceteria, a hip nightclub in Manhattan, working as a busboy. 
You got like cafeteria. Cafeteria? Cafeteria? <laughs> cafeteria. Danceteria. I think that's what how it's supposed to be. Dope. Uh, while working there, he studied hard the nightclub business <laughs> and soon became a party promoter. Mm. He threw outrageous parties and quickly rose to the top of New York City's party scene. Alec and other regular club goers created flamboyant costumes and personas and became known as the club kids. The costumes they wore were described as part drag, part clown, and part infantilism by former club kid James St. James. But if you ask me, they were all nutty. Heavy drug use was common among the club kids, and Michael Alleg was big into it. Ketamine, or Special K. That's, um, those are horse tranquilizers, right? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. they are. Amy says they are. <laughs> Rohypnol. Roofies. Roofies. Heroin and cocaine, uh, were the, and ecstasy, were the main substances fueling his parties. Some of Alex's circle of club kids included Ernie Glam, Gitsy, Superstar DJ Kiyoki, Richie Rich, maybe even the cartoon. Uh, you know what? Robert. Richie Rich. Oh, yes. The movie, wasn't it played by Macaulay Culkin? I don't know. Yeah. And then he also played Michael Alec in Party Monster. <sighs> Connection? Conspiracy? I don't know. There's literally no conspiracy there. <laughs> also, uh, he comes up later, but Robert Freeze Riggs and RuPaul, oh, of I all people. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, the media was attracted to the club kids' outrageousness, and uh, they appeared in articles in magazines such as Time, Newsweek, and People. They also appeared on popular talk shows of the time, like Donahue, Joan Rivers, and a couple times on Geraldo. Your favorite. Geraldo's mustache. Cracking the case. In 1998, Alec was hired by Peter Gation, owner of the very popular nightclub, The Limelight. I think he owned other clubs around town, too. Alec's parties at The Limelight were so popular that Alec was hired to organize parties at other hip clubs, such as Club USA, The Palladium, and The Tunnel. Alec also threw quote-unquote outlaw parties, which were thrown in very unconventional places like Burger King, Dunkin' Donuts, abandoned houses, and even the subway. It's like the flash mobs yeah. now or something. They would just uh, all descend on a place without warning and party until the cops would come break it up, revitalizing the New York City party scene, according to some. Annoying the shit out of others, according, <laughs> according to others. <laughs> In the in the movie Party Monster, he like goes to like a Dunkin' Donuts or like one of those kind of places and buys like three hundred burgers and has like a dance party for like thirty seconds before the cops show up. Yeah, that movie. Oh, and is... then there's the scene with the bus. Which with the which was driven by Marilyn Manson. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, that was a weird scene. I also think Marilyn Manson was a part of the club kid scene then too. And that's one of the reasons that like his cameo was kind of um significant in the film too i think he was kind of part of the club kids because he was a freak back in the 90s as well 
Yeah, could be. I, I don't say, know. I say freak with a lot of love. I don't love Marilyn Manson, but I appreciate him. I'm not up on my Marilyn Manson either. I, yeah, the last. Thing I'm just I really knew- behind the times on all of this. This is all new to me. Yeah, I'm 2020. It's it. I'm scared. 2020, you're gonna become a club kid. I'm bringing it back, <laughs> West Coast style. Um, <laughs> I could never. Bring no, that I back. know you. I know you couldn't. These guys look like they walked off a spaceship. Yeah. Um, Alex's parties were also notorious due in part to his own bad behavior. He'd throw hundred dollar bills onto crowded dance floors just to watch the club goers clamor for it. He would also urinate on people or urinate in their drinks. Does that remind you of anyone we we know? Everyone from Australia? <laughs> <laughs> Almost everyone. From, yes, correct. As his popularity grew, so did his drug use. He was arrested several times for drugs and went to rehab several times, but never quit using. Alec claims his behavior can be explained by a personality disorder. Uh, histrionic. Histrionic personality were gonna, disorder. Were you going to say that? I absolutely was going to okay. say it. I just d- like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he claims that the doctor said that his case was the most extreme case that they'd ever seen. But. What does it do? So here's like, here's what the symptoms are. Oh, okay. And Yeah. I'll just, well, I'll just go from there. Yeah. Uh, So a person with histrionic personality disorder seeks attention, talks dramatically with strong opinions, is easily influenced, and rapidly, or sorry. Or, yeah, and has. Has rapidly changing emotions and thinks their relationships with people are closer than they really are. Hmm. Just sounds like chicks to me, man. Hey. (laughs) Is that considered a disorder? No. It's just yeah, like a it's narcissist. Just a personality disorder. Club kid. It's like a resume I, for the club yeah, kids. Yeah, I just find that bothers me a little bit. This whole thing bothers me. <laughs> As it should. This podcast should bother you. Everything we're talking about is illegal. Now we have Andre Angel, what he was known as, uh, Melendez. He moved to the States from Colombia at the Columbia. age. Colombia. Colombia is in the United States. Colombia is a country in South America. Fuck me. Okay. Well, you put a U there and it's supposed to be an O. Oh, well. Colombia. They can't see that. <laughs> but you said Colombia. <laughs> I'm starting over. <laughs> <laughs> he moved from Colombia. <laughs> At the age of Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So, Andre. (laughs) (laughs) Andre. (laughs) Take two. So, Andre Angel Melendez moved to the States from Colombia at the age of eight. And that's Colombia with an O, not a U. He was a regular on the New York City dance club scene and worked at the Limelight, as well as other clubs selling drugs. So he was an official employee. <laughs> <laughs> he was the manager. <laughs> of drugs. Yeah. 
After the limelight was closed by federal agents following an investigation that found limelight owner Peter Gation, he was allowing drugs to be sold there, apparently. Angel moved into Alex Riverbank West apartment. The night of March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 1996, Alec and Angel get into a heated argument that got physical. Angel was slamming Alec against the wall, demanding uh, the money owed to him. Alec called out to his roommate, Robert D. Freeze Riggs. Sounds like a porn name. Uh, who <laughs> it, res- it might be. <laughs> it probably is. He responded by hitting Angel three times in the head with a hammer, killing him. Alec claims he was so fucked up on drugs that his memories about how the events transpired are unclear. After the murder, they didn't know what to do with the body. Initially, they put the body in the bathtub and filled it with ice. But after a few days, the body started to decompose and smell. Rumors of Alec injecting the body with Drano and other chemicals to deal with the smell are untrue, according to Alec. In exchange for ten bags of heroin... Only ten. Alec agreed to dismember the body. He cut off the legs and put them into a garbage bag and then into separate duffel bags and then threw those into the Hudson River. The rest of the body was put into a large box that Mr. Freeze found in the basement and thrown into the Hudson as well. After the murder, Alec apparently told people about the murder but many thought it was just a ploy for attention. Articles started appearing in a Village Voice column reporting a missing clubgoer, details of the death and Alec's rumored involvement. Other publications mentioned the missing club kid and the rumors surrounding what happened. Over the coming weeks, the Village Voice continued to report and make accusations about Melendez's murder. Through September 1996, Police were focusing on Peter Gation, the owner of the limelight, and had not questioned Alec. Prosecutors wanted Alec to testify against Gation. Several months had passed since the murder, and people started thinking Alec might get away with the killing. Children playing in Oakwood Beach pulled a box from the water containing, guess what? What? A legless torso. Uh, in November 1996, the coroner reported that the body had been ID'd as Andre Angel Melendez. Alec fled New York and was located by police in Tom's River, New Jersey, at a motel room rented by Alec's drug dealer boyfriend. Alec was arrested as well as was Robert Freeze Riggs. Riggs confessed to police, saying he came home to Alec and Melendez loudly arguing. He was headed to his bedroom when Alec started yelling, Get him off me. Angel was shaking Alec violently and banging him against the wall, saying, You better get my money or I'll break your neck. So he said he grabbed a hammer and hit Angel over the head. He grabbed the hammer or Freeze grabbed the hammer? Freeze grabbed the hammer. Uh, Riggs told police he hit Angel three times on the head with a hammer. Alec then grabbed a pillow and tried to smother Angel. Alec claimed the murder was self-defense, and he helped dispose of the body in a panic. E. Yeah. And there, the whole time, everyone's just fucked on drugs, too. So. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, I just as a word to the listeners, if it's self-defense, call the police and don't dismember the body. 
<laughs> yeah, not dismembering the body would be a good first step, I, mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's like fairly common that people quote unquote do that. And it's almost never the case of self-defense, but it's just some, yeah, it's not a good idea. So uh, prosecutors didn't want to charge Alec with first degree murder in hopes that he'd testify against Gation on the drug investigation. They eventually offered Alec and Riggs a plea deal, a sentence of 10 to 20 years if they accepted the lesser charge of manslaughter. So on October 1st, 1997, both Alec and Riggs pled guilty and were sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Uh, while serving his sentence, Alec was transferred several times from prison to prison. He spent some time at the psych ward at Rikers Island. In the year 2000, he was placed in solitary confinement after getting caught using heroin. He remained there for two and a half years after drug tests showed he was still using. What? Yeah, I don't know how you God get heroin in, the, in solitary, but I have my he suspicions, real but I'm not going to air them. He's real good at party favors. So in 2004, Alex's longtime friend and mentor, James St. James, started a blog entitled Phone Calls from a Felon. What? The blog contained transcripts of phone calls between the two describing Alex's experience in prison. But after six weeks, Alex ended the phone calls, saying, quote, uh, people think I'm having a great old time or that I'm trying to exploit my situation. You know who he sounds like at this point? And I know, well, something we didn't talk about was the Don't Fuck With Cats documentary. But uh, he, yeah. he kind of reminds me of Luca Magnata right now. Of just like having a little too much fun in prison and not like, you know, I mean, Michael Alec doesn't seem as terrible as Luca Magnata, but like. I don't know how much fun two and a half years in solitary is, but. Well, the fact that he's kind of even having some fun is bothersome, you know. Alec became eligible for parole in 2006. His first request was denied, supposedly after parole officers watched the movie Party Monster, a fictionalized account of Alec's life, starring Macaulay Culkin as Alec. Uh, he was denied again in 2008 after failing several drug tests. Alec was finally paroled on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 2014. Per the conditions of his parole, he returned to New York City. He was required to adhere to an 8 p.m. curfew and undergo drug and anger management counseling courses, as well as attend job readiness training. In months following his release, Alec gave numerous interviews where he expressed his desire to be a reality TV star, as well as staging an exhibition for his artwork. Since September 2014, Alec and fellow club member, uh, club kid, Ernie Glam, have hosted a YouTube comedy talk show called The PU. I don't know if it's still going or not, but I watched one of them. It's supposed to be like a play on words with like The View? I think so, yeah. It's pretty amusing. <laughs> uh, I was over, I was really wondering what you were listening <laughs> to. And I was like, are you listening to that murderer's, like, Fun talk show? Yeah, it's strange. October 15th, 2014, Alec released a pop song called What's In, Oof. featuring DJ Kiyoki, written and produced by Greg Tanous. 
I don't know who that is, but the name sounds familiar. Hmm. Um, they also did an EP under the same name. In May 2015, a selection of Alex's paintings went on display at the Select Fair in New York. On February 2nd, not a significant date at all. Oh. <laughs> That's my birthday. <laughs> uh, in 2017, Alec was arrested for trespassing and smoking crystal meth. What? At Joyce Kilmar Park, right outside the Bronx Supreme Court. What? Yep. I thought... You thought wrong. He's a fucked up dude. Well, we all are in certain ways. I mean, I guess he hopefully didn't kill anyone that night. I mean, I've never gotten arrested for murder or smoking crystal meth, but we all have our quirks. So recently, uh, Michael Alleg was spotted at the Hudson County Office of Cultural and Heritage Affairs. Uh, where he presented a new club kid and internet sensation, Desmond is Amazing, with an award for his role in helping to combat bullying in schools. So the guy's name is Desmond is Amazing? Do you know who this guy is? No, He's like this little kid, like a trans kid, I guess. Hmm. Um, he's like on talk shows and stuff, and he's like... So... He's a controversial so, figure. Wait. Desmond is amazing as a controversial figure. Yeah. You know who else is controversial? A fucking murderer <laughs> giving an award to a kid. That's fucking weird. The whole thing surrounding this both of these very, characters. Like the it, This is very weird. Yeah, it is very weird. We mm. we are living in the upside down. <laughs> so he's been kind of secured his spot in like pop culture, I guess you can say. I don't know how to say that, but well, there you um, go. You said it. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> a couple of movies have been made about him or mm -hmm. his case. Um, two different movies by the same name, Party Monster, how original, uh, directed by Randy Barbado and Fenton Bailey. One came out in 98. Um, Party Monster, the shockumentary. I think that one, there's one of them, Saint, James, Satan James had like a fairly big hand in. Maybe it's that first one. Yeah. I think it's maybe based on his book that he wrote. Ah, uh, yeah. Called, that uh, makes, yeah, yeah. Ball, like uh, Disco Room Blitz or Bloodbath. It's bath. called, I have Disco it right here. Disco Bloodbath? Disco Bloodbath. Oh, there you go. <laughs> a fabulous but true tale of murder in Clubland. And he changed the name of the book to Party Monster after the movie came out. So he probably did, it was probably the first one. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, uh, in 2003, they released another, same directors released another party monster movie, this time featuring Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green. Seth Green was James St. James, right? Yeah. And he plays a lot of things on nerdy things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm forgetting his name on that right now. I'm sure somebody knows. Oh. He plays Willow's boyfriend. That really clears it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Xander. No. That's like the main guy. No, because that guy sounds badass. Xandor? Xander. We were just talking about that name. I know. Whoa. And I told you that the only person I know named Xander was it's... on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Shit. Uh, there's also another uh, movie, a documentary called Glory Days, The Life and Times of Michael Alec. And that Man, was he's totally getting off on all of these movies about him. Pun intended? Yeah. Well, oh, getting off. Yeah. Well, 
what I mean, what bothers me and what bothers, I think, everyone is that what have you talked about this whole time? Michael Alec, Michael Alec, Michael Alec, the things that Michael Alec has touched. I hope you know you're making fun of someone with a personality disorder. <laughs> He's like histriolic uh. or something like that. <laughs> but I'm just like what totally gets lost is the victim in it, which is Angel Melendez, you know? Yeah, I saw an interview with his brother and it, and it was he was still real busted up about it. And yeah. It was pretty hard to watch. I mean, because that's the thing. Party monster, party monster, party monster. Whoa, murder. Whoa. It's like, dude. Angel Melendez is a is like he's just part of the background. Yeah, it's he, sad. He was a total like part of their club too. You know, I mean, they're all friends. It was really crazy. Um, and you know, he was selling drugs and stuff, but he wasn't like a bad guy. Yeah, maybe sleazy. Yeah, and in um the Party Monster movie, the one with Macaulay Culkin, um, I forget the actor's name, but the gay dude from My So Called Life, Ricky. He plays Angel Melendez in the movie. So if there's any fans of My So-Called Life out there, he's in that movie. It's it's a ridiculous movie, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's got a fairly good cast. I don't, nec- I don't <laughs> recommend it either. <laughs> um, but there's been a couple TV shows that featured the case. Uh, it was featured in American Justice, Deadly Devotion, Notorious... It was in Netflix's Deadliest Decade, one of those episodes. Oh, yeah. And E! True Hollywood Story did a feature about it as well. So that is the party monster. Case. So you guys don't be party monsters tonight. Do be party monsters, but don't be killing your friend (laughs) in the head with a hammer. Yeah, that's not cool. If you do... If you do what? Make sure it's one of those inflatable hammers filled with, like, vodka or something. <laughs> um, but the, the guy, the freeze guy, he got he got out, like, way before Michael Alec did, didn't he? I think so. Yeah, and it's weird because it seems weird. like he's, like... Because <laughs> he's the one that totally yeah. did it. Yeah, I mean, like, I think maybe Michael Alec, like, finished him off kind of a thing. But, like, the dude hammered him in the head multiple times before Michael even had a chance to, like, join in. But again, I think he was doing it because wasn't like Michael, like he was like screaming out, like, help me, basically. You're all on fucking drugs. You know, it's like a, a party foul. Yes. To bring it around. Party foul play, if you will. Party foul play. And I will. So we hope you had a safe and happy new year and we wish you nothing but the best for 2020. We'll see if the world implodes this year. Fingers crossed. Um, you can follow us on a bunch of social media stuff. Just look for like a true crime dumpster thing somewhere. You'll find yeah, us. Just follow your nose. Um, we're going to be more active on social media and stuff this year. That's our resolution. Um, oh, I getting can't more, wait for that. Getting more case suggestions from you guys and um, other true crime stories of the week to start, um, you know, the show off with. Stir in the pot. Help us stir that pot. Okay. Help us. Yeah, we need some suggestions. Well, actually. Amy's only got the next three years planned out, so. <laughs> I know. I, I spend a lot of my time. I'm on, like, episode 75, <laughs> but realistically, you're only on episode 8. But I have enough for, like, the next 70 episodes or so. Um, we have some really cool stuff coming up with probably a couple guest appearances. So stay or, tuned. Or disappearances, Ooh, if yeah. you will. So um, we hope you have a great week. 
Happy 2020 New Year. Bye-bye. The pot is over. It's time to call it a day. They burst your pretty balloons. <laughs>